2: Hi, I'm Phil Craig and I'm Andrew Loney and together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast.
3: Morning Andrew, another week? Another week, yes, another royal week. Um, week. We're really sort of building on these royal stories and some very, very good people I think and getting a bit of attention for them too in the papers. Yes, another of our,
2: um, well, you could probably explain, we reached the dizzy heights of the Daily Mail, I think, for the third
3: time, didn't we? Yes, I mean, they ran a story on Andrew Morton's um, uh, discussion with us about um, what might happen to the Queen's private papers and the whole sort of concern that they had been vetted by her valet rather than a trained historian. So it'll be interesting to see if that runs. And I think we'll also get some attention for Di Davis. Um, I think once they listen to that, there's some interesting things he said there about um uh, assassination attempts on the Queen, um, the fact that the royal family shouldn't be above the law. Uh, there are big questions uh, being raised about some of the allegations against not just Prince Andrew, but also the king himself with um some monies uh, at Dumfries' house. So um, I'm hoping maybe next week we'll be back in the papers. Very good. Well, I mean, um, from the very serious to the not so serious,
2: um, Andrew came to dinner. He came to this house for dinner with Mrs. Andrew, lovely Angela. Um, You know, I sometimes tease Andrew about being a little bit of an old fart, a bit of an old fogey, (laughs) not quite of the 21st century. Tell him what
3: happened, Andrew. Well, we took the wrong, the wrong, we're not used to going out uh, out of our little comfort zone in the centre of London. So uh, we went out to see you in the sticks and uh, we took the wrong turning at the, the railway station. So after hours of wandering around, um, we yeah, eventually, Why did
2: you, Andrew? Don't you have maybe a phone, a mobile phone perhaps? Many people have them.
3: Yes, I, I have heard about those, but um, no, we, we rely on maps and intuition. Uh, so uh, we did eventually get there. Uh, and it was yeah. very good. It was worth the wait. It was. We had a very jolly evening, and it was very
2: amusing to see you wandering lost around the streets. Ut- utterly technologically
3: inept. Never mind. That's why I let um, you do all the, the technical stuff on this. Yeah, that's why it
2: looks so shabby. But um, actually, we've had quite a bit more feedback. We've also had some more charts. I thought we would. We're back in the charts in Ireland. We're back in the charts slightly bizarrely in Brazil. Quite low, but people are listening in South America and also in Italy and New Zealand. So um, people are paying attention, and we have more people finding the finding the older shows. Um, what's this one? I'm just opening up some of the older shows in front of me. Um, I recently found your fantastic podcast, says Leslie Fisherice. If you want to know who we are, your viewers and listeners, I'm from San Antonio, Texas, um, which is lovely. Lubi Lu number two, Lubi Lu number two, says tells us uh, thanks for our delightful little chats is good. or likely like to be delightful. And another person um, says, I'm from uh, the west coast of British Columbia in Canada. It's G- Gabrielle Butterfield saying very nice things about the programs and how much she enjoys them and is looking forward to more. Isn't that lovely?
3: Well, I think we're going to try and, and, and talk to some of our listeners in future episodes and perhaps do Zoom links with them. Yes, uh, we are. We've been talking news? about this. We've had a couple of people
2: putting themselves forward and yeah, maybe a sort of five or ten minutes at the end of one of our shows, getting people to, to ask us things that they want to know about, and challenge us about things, and tell us what they want to hear um, about in future. That would be really good fun. Um,
3: so we had some feedback that actually sometimes the, the the podcasts are a little bit short. I mean, we would like to keep it quite tight, but I think we're stretching a little bit beyond that 40 minutes, sometimes up to an hour. Uh, and I think also we're keen that... I think the, the our acoustics are okay, but sometimes some of our guests need to. to, to we need better acoustics there, so we're looking at that. Yes. So yes. all these all this feedbacks really helpful to us to try and get things a bit better.
2: Okay, and so to Diana. Now this is a program I didn't really want to do, um, but I've overcome my objections. I've let Andrew sweet talk me, um, and actually I think it's going to be really interesting.
3: I think so. I mean, it's interesting if you look at best selling books. On Dinah, on Amazon, Andrew Morton is still up there, uh, at the top, but actually just behind him are a series of books about the death of Diana and raising questions about whether it was an accident. And we're going to be talking to one of the people, probably the most comprehensive book on, on, on the death, uh, about it. But, um, I'm hoping also we may get some comments maybe in future episodes from other people, uh, who investigated it, people like Di Davis. Yes. Um, so um, I think this could be an interesting new area, and, and maybe your mind will be changed. Well, look, I'm, the work I did on Diana was pretty
2: comprehensive, but it was 20 years ago. And I relied to a great extent then for the, co- for the final months of her life and her relationship with the Fayyads and what happened in Paris. I very much had a friend of mine, Martin Gregory, who wrote a book, um, which was the sort of anti-conspiracy theory book, but like Gerald Posner wrote the anti-conspiracy theory book on the Kennedy assassination. He did that, and I found it very plausible. And you know, as we've talked about before, the bigger the conspiracy, the less likely it is. And this one has to be very, very big to make yes. it make any sense. It has to encompass um, security forces and ambulance people from two different countries and all sorts of things. But um, and to
3: be sustained for for twenty five years yeah. without anyone breaking rank. So, so it's, a big, it's a big big.
2: I have read the book, and actually, there are things that we'll talk about in a minute that that do make me think. Okay that's a bit weird. And certainly this guy um, seems to have spent the best part of the last 20 years of his life going over every single detail of this day. He has indeed unearthed some interesting things.
3: Well, I suppose the thing about history is it isn't all neat edges, that there are some ragged things. There are things that are unexplained, perhaps in the chaos of the moment things happened. Uh, and I think one of the themes of the podcast is is not conspiracy, but the fact that sometimes the cover-up is worse than the initial crime. And I think there's a suggestion here that, that certainly they didn't respond to the investigations, perhaps, as as well as they could have done.
2: All right. Well, um, shall we get to it? Yes, absolutely. Uh, open, look, my open-minded face. Here we go. Paul, welcome.
4: Good afternoon.
2: Thank you for joining us. Um, so um, we, we're here to talk about this book, this weighty tome, which you know a lot about. Um, yes. And unfortunately, John, who 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 did, I believe, most of the work on the book, um, I'm sure you'll tell us more about that, um, sadly died a few years ago. But uh, you know a lot about it, and a lot about him. So if you want to give us a, some general introduction.
4: Well, if I give you the background, I, I worked with the journalist and humorist um, Victor Lewis Smith for about 40 years. And we made, in the early 2000s, a series of documentaries with Channel 4, with Keith Allen, the actor. And one of those was about Mohammed al-Fayed. And it was a kind of broadly sympathetic um, portrayal of Mohammed. And soon after that, the inquest into the deaths of Princess Diana and Mohammed's son, Dodi, were coming up. And he asked us if we would think about making a documentary about the inquest um that was fund, funded largely by um Allied Stars, which was a, a film company he had. So we started um preparing for that, because it seemed an interesting topic. And then out of the blue we got um a book by someone, John Morgan, none of us had ever heard of him. I don't know if you remember, but about nine months before the inquest started, there was the Metropolitan Police issued a report called the Paget Report, which had been overseen by Lord Stevens. And basically, the, the summaries of that were sort of saying it was all an accident. There's nothing to see here. Um, but John had then spent the next sort of six or eight months going right through the Paget report and pointing out hundreds of errors and inconsistencies and downright falsehoods, in my opinion, certainly. And this book came all sort of perfectly itemized um, just before the inquest itself started. And we managed to get a contact email for John. And because he was in Australia, I'll I'll tell you a little more about John's background in a minute. Um, Because he was in Australia, he was very keen to know what was happening day to day in the inquest. So initially, we just struck up a relationship. And I sent him because we had journalists who were sitting in every day in the inquest and listening not only to um, what was being said, as the official inquest but also talking to other journalists there and getting their opinions on what was happening and we would send a weekly report back to john and he in turn would send us lots of his information right um perhaps i should just mention a little bit about john um i don't, I don't know if you've looked at his bi- biography he was born in 1957 in new zealand and he was an f- forensic accountant by profession but in 2003 he got struck down with a terrible disease called multiple system sorry multiple system atrophy and basically his whole body became paralyzed he could still sort of from the neck up he could still speak but he he lost all his normal functions digestion and so on and so he obviously you know he was in a wheelchair he couldn't move he had a wonderful wife Lana who looked after him constantly but his mind was still absolutely clear and he had that being a forensic accountant he had a very clear precise mind and he also about that time had started to, to become very interested in what he could see were a lot of unexplained factors about the death of Princess Diana and so he started sort of analysing it I think to give himself a new purpose in life initially probably as much as anything.
2: That's I mean, it is. I'm sure we're going to get onto the, you know, the pros and cons and the why's and wherefores of the book, but it is, it is an amazing achievement, and especially when you consider he was sitting there, paralysed from the neck down, really just working through screens for, I don't know, best part of ten years to to, to produce it. But, uh,
4: well, it's extraordinary. He didn't just produce that one, incidentally. I mean, on my shelf behind, I'll get them out if you like. There's about ten wow, altogether. God. Um, and, the first but, one he did, as I say. The the first one was on the Paget report, which was actually before the inquest happened, um, which i we've looked at the Paget report, which was looking at the the crash um, in back in nineteen ninety seven. But didn't. it's an interesting. Sorry,
3: yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, we've looked through it. I mean, I mean, in in essence, what is what is more, uh, John's argument? I mean, do you think in the book
4: His what his arguments are? That basically there was a cover up. I mean, John is is very, I mean. I, being a journalist, am a bit more equivocal about exactly what happened. I don't like to assume too much, but John is very clear that it was a targeted assassination of Diana with other people dying, uh, but, you know, Dodie and um, Henri Paul, the driver, just as collateral damage, um, and that it was organised by the intelligence services. I mean, he's very clear about that.
3: And why would they have wanted to kill her? I mean, and also why do it that way?
4: Well, there are numerous reasons that he gives and that I, I certainly would give some credence to I mean one is is always the idea that you know if somebody dies in a traffic accident I mean traffic accidents are banal they're horrible for the people involved obviously but people die in traffic accidents all the time so it's a you just say well it was another accident um I mean there are a lot of reasons why Diana at that time by 1997 partly um, you know she was causing a lot of trouble to the British establishment certainly. Um, I don't know if you've looked at the whole campaign to ban anti-personnel landmines, which was, there was a big international campaign at that time.
2: Yes, and she and very she much became... annoyed the government of the time. Uh, oh, absolutely. That, that, that she was in quite a bit of trouble. I uh, actually got a lot of kudos from um, from others for for, for for that campaign. And yes, and John goes into that in some great detail. But the part of the book I found the most persuasive <laughs> is the motive. Uh, there are lots of reasons, in it, and he explains in, them in the book, why they might yeah. want to get rid of her. And clearly she herself thought um, that she that they might want to get rid of her. She um, dictated yes.
3: that note to Victor Mishkon. I mean, um, uh, you know, with, with you know, so to a lawyer. And Patrick Jefferson, who who both of us know, you know, was aware of this note.
4: Yes. Well, yes, I mean, she went, and that was about 18 months before the crash happened, and there was a sworn note at um, Mishkon Durea's office there saying that I've heard from security services that there are plans to have me killed or seriously injured in a road accident. Yeah. And she also don't know wrote
2: that. Sorry, for our viewers who don't know the intricacies of British life, Lord Mishcon, we're talking about, he was Diana's personal lawyer, one of the most prestigious lawyers in the country from his firm, Mishcon Moraya. And uh, and as you say, yes, she sat down with him and gave him this extraordinary account of how she felt in fear of her life.
4: Yes, and it- of course, um, you know, I, I I think Lord Michigan is no, no longer amongst the living. Um, but, uh, you know, at the time when the crash happened, the rather extraordinary thing was, it seems extraordinary to me, is instead of making that note public, he first of all didn't do anything with it for about three weeks. And then he eventually took it to the Metropolitan Police and they agreed to keep the note secret. <clears throat> and it was kept secret for about six years that she had uh, you know, predicted, uh, I mean, at, at least that you would think that was a coincidence worth exploring, that somebody I mean, I goes think, to their, their well, lawyer and says, I'm going to be killed in a traffic accident, and then they are.
3: I think the question that people would raise is, you know, this is if this was a big conspiracy, why hasn't anyone become broken rank, talked about it? I mean, it was a chaotic of, uh, day or evening of events. It's very difficult to see how that could have been pre-planned. And then it succeeded no one has come forward and said actually i was involved
4: well i i think there were good reasons for people to just say they weren't involved i mean there are a lot of peculiar coincidences i don't know if you know that the head of mi6 i, th- I don't think this is a, a, a terrible secret um to to make public the head of mi6 in paris and he um resigned or he, he stepped down from that role um, exactly at the, I think, just after midnight on the night when the crash happened and somebody else took over at that well, point.
2: Well, I, I, one thing I should probably say, actually, is uh, we don't want to meet a white Uno. So we're not going to mention anybody's names today.
4: <laughs> uh, but okay, I, well, you can... You're, I
2: will ed- ed- sn- slip that out, but I want to just go back to the motive. I mean, Andrew's right. I really want to get into the method. Uh, the motive, she does say something else. I mean, she's a little bit paranoid at this point. This document she gives to to, to, to the to the lawyer, it's yeah. around the time she's talking to Martin Bashir, she had a, a, her own levels of paranoia. He's fed them because he he's she's telling the lawyer that they want to kill me. Um that's so that Charles can marry the nanny, Tiggy Leg Bork. Tiggy leg Bork, yeah. And and there's quite a lot of slightly crazy stuff in this uh in this um and implausible stuff in what she says. But the other motive though that John gets into, which I found was really interesting, is that he's convinced that she was pregnant and that it says that the, the, the postmortems and the autopsies were all um covered up and you know they were they were they were kind of um not done properly and openly. Um yes. so there's a second motive which he say which he claims um, you know, really well, got up also, the, skin of the royal family.
4: I would say at that time, I mean I, I think there are good reasons to think she might have been pregnant. But even if she hadn't been, I think, you know, if you look back at the coverage at that time, there was a lot of speculation. There was a famous photograph taken on board the Fired's yacht where she looked like she was pregnant. I don't think the time scale actually works out that she could have been because she hadn't known Dodie for long enough at that point to have been visibly showing pregnancy. But, you know, I mean, motives are about what people think are happening um, rather than necessarily what is happening. But it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, he goes into great detail of this, that there was an obsession once Diana was dead with getting her embalmed um, and particularly sending a very inexperienced young embalmer there to um, extract all the urine from her body because that's one of the ways you can conduct a test quite easily. And um, I, I think also, you know, by that point, her blood had been so contaminated that there was no longer a sort of simple test that could be done. But I seem to remember in John's um, uh, lo- looking at the. Um, I'm just trying to remember this. The Salpetriere, isn't it, the hospital she was taken to? In the end, her body was taken to. But um, there, there were sort of marks on there so- suggesting that she possibly was pregnant initially. It's, it's so difficult to know. I mean, you know, John's gone very forensically through it. it Hospital was suspicious about Diana's death. They ticked a box immediately on her death certificate, saying that it was a suspicious accident. But that was very, very quickly sort of overruled by people higher up. um I mean, I'm aware when you start talking about this, you rapidly sound like a mad conspiracy theorist <laughs> because you start well, and, pulling. And
2: I suppose of- you know we we find this fascinating, and I would say one thing about the book: it it really does raise. It, it raises several things that I find persuasive, that it knits them all together in a way I'm not sure I do, if I'm honest. You know, when he starts bringing in Blair and Chirac and Bill Clinton and private secretaries and the CIA, and I mean, that is just a very, very big thing. But uh, there are a lot of unexplained this, questions. This country we live in finds it mm. difficult to organize traffic cones. So I think organizing that might be a challenge. But
4: Well, that's when I... When I first got involved in making the, the film about the inquest, my view was that it was an accident because I thought, as people tend to, you couldn't have a conspiracy. There'd have to be so many people involved in this conspiracy. But but by the end, I'm not so sure, because I think it's quite possible to be involved in a conspiracy without knowing you're involved in a conspiracy. Well, that's I interesting. think there are various levels in you know the law, obviously in the civil service, in the intelligence services, where the natural reaction is to be defensive and is to dismiss things and to hide things. And I don't think that's because everybody knows there's a big conspiracy. They just have a vague sense that it's better if this document or whatever doesn't come to the public attention. He
2: certainly makes a a good case, I think, that she's being kept under surveillance. He makes a good case, Mm. I think, that there are things happening in Paris uh, involving spooks and, and he makes a good case that the Ritz, in particular, is a place where people are often paid for information, and yeah. there's an awful lot of kind of you know slightly kind of spooky activity going on. All of that it's I still- found I found quite quite persuasive.
3: But also I mean, one thing strange I... Paul Henry you know was was I mean this he argues was sober he has all these unexplained payments he wasn't someone who was an ever driven people before um I mean there are a lot of very strange things that happened on the on the night and, and the driver Andrew's talking about strong. the driver Paul Henry yes
4: yeah um yes i mean one of the things is you know there was a great attempt to portray him as a drunk and as a chronic alcoholic and yet four days before the crash happened, he he was also an, a, a pilot in his spare time. And he'd had his annual test, which is very thorough if you're a pilot. It's much more than just a, a, a few simple tests. And he got a clean, clean bill of health for that. And also, if you've watched, um, you can find it online or we use some in our documentary of the um, CCTV footage from inside and outside the Paris Ritz on the night. You can see him a few minutes before he gets off to drive the car. Um, getting down sort of kneeling he goes down and uh, i don't know if if, you know you do that but you kneel down and tie one shoelace and then swap legs and do the other one um i mean at the inquest there was a a, an, an expert for what there were who said that you simply cannot do that if you're drunk because your your sense of balance will go and he certainly doesn't look <laughs> at all
2: drunk. I find it hard enough sober these days, I have
4: to be honest. Well, yes, I mean, that's what I was thinking. Uh, you know, f- thank goodness I've got to the, to the stage of leaning against the
2: wall to help. <laughs> <I
3: think. laughs> and also, so, there, was, sorry, there were all these stories about the motorbike paparazzi and there seemed to be extra bikes there that weren't mm. accounted for. And, I mean, even a London lawyer had testimony that he saw people fleeing. I mean, it does, and there's a suggestion that actually they were forced into the Alma mm-hmm. Tunnel um by by the bikes that actually he could have gone but forced that way
4: and one of of the interesting things i I mentioned earlier the paget report that the metropolitan police had done (laughs) if you actually look in detail at the paget report um the summaries of, of each section say oh there's nothing to see here it's all easily explained but if you actually look at the evidence it's very different and there was um Well, you'll have to bleep out if we can't mention any names, but I mean, it's in the public domain. DCI Carpenter was one of the, the police investigators, and they did a very thorough analysis of where all the paparazzi were, because, you know, the paparazzi are people with professional connections to newspapers. They're not just people who turn up on a bike because they have to have somebody that they know they can rapidly send pictures to to get them published because that's their job. Um, And uh, the DCI Carpenter was able to account for where all the paparazzi were. And apart from one motorbike that had um, Rommel Rat on RAT um, and was ridden by Stefan Darmont, all the others could be accounted for. And they were nowhere near the car at the time of the crash. And yet numerous witnesses say that they saw several motorcycles. So those were certainly unexplained. They don't seem to have been part of the paparazzi. But
2: this is is an interesting example, though, of John's method, I think. Um, It's a bit suspicious that the car appears to have been surrounded by motorcyclists uh, who have never been identified. And that is interesting. I mean, there are quite a few motorcyclists in Paris, but, you know, is it suspicious? Well, he he then from that jumps to the thought that maybe it's the SAS acting on behalf of MI6. And that's, I guess, at the point I start to think, well, this
3: is I don't know, putting two and two together and getting 512. But, but there is also this chap, James Adamson, you know, who yeah. seems to have been involved. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about him? And Because, I mean, you know, he had this very mysterious death too. Yes,
4: well, a lot of things about him. I mean, he he was a paparazzo, so, if that's the correct singular. It, it's known that he had a white fear. You know, he, was at the, 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 he lived about 100 miles or so outside Paris, Um But, uh, yes, I mean, there was at the time of the crash, there were denials that a white Fiat Uno had been involved. The police said, no, no, this, this is just fabricated. But eventually, after about two weeks, they had to admit that there was paint from a white Fiat Uno that was found on the body of the Mercedes where there'd been a collision. And, you know, it's possible through chromatography to identify exactly where paint comes from. So at that point, they acknowledged that there had been a white Fiat Uno in collision, and they made a, a not very serious attempt, in my opinion, to try and find it.
3: Um, and also Adamson, the MI6 agent, Richard Tomlinson, said that there was a paparazzi working for MI6 and he thought it might have been Anderson.
4: Yes, I, I interviewed Richard Tomlinson, incidentally, if mean, we, we can mention him, because um, he, he was no longer in MI6 by that point. I mean, he's an interesting character because I had to interview him in France because he'd been told if he came back to Britain that he would be arrested um and um about 9 months after, well I interviewed him a few months after the inquest finished and then a few months later I heard from him that he'd been told by MI6 that now he was allowed to come back <laughs> I think once the inquest was out of the way they were no longer bothered what he was saying so much but yes I mean he said n- numerous things that he'd um firstly that when he worked in MI6 he'd come across a plan for to, for a, an assassination of a Serbian leader, because the Serbian conflict was happening back in the mid-90s, um, uh, uh, of causing a, a crash in a tunnel. So there would be very few witnesses, and there'd be a lot of concrete around, and that it would be a crash that would be made to look like an accident. And um, that's, of course, a, a, you know, about a Serbian leader. But, I mean, it it shows that MI6 had that kind of plan in their thinking. Um, and secondly, he talked about he didn't mention Henri Paul as definitely the person, but he knew that there was somebody working in the Paris Ritz who was also connected to the intelligence services and had a pilot's license, which Henri Paul did. So there were reasons to think that it might well have been him.
2: And this man, James Anderson, we didn't quite finish him uh, before. Yes. He, the, uh, John's theory, I think, is that he was uh, MI6 asset or agent who'd worked a little bit as a paparazzo, but was also doing kind of jobs for the government, for the British government. And it's possible yeah. that he had, he was driving this Fiat Uno, which many people believe, well, it obviously did nudge at some point the car, the Mercedes in the tunnel with Diana inside it. And then he ends he ends up meeting a very strange death, doesn't he?
4: Well, his, his death was, <laughs> excuse me, certainly unusual. He, he was found in a burnt,
0: That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
4: ...out car in a field, um, and the, the, I think the fireman who found him said that he had two bullet holes in his head. Um, and, you know, it's quite a, an odd way to commit suicide, it seems to me, although suicide was the verdict that was brought in to, you know, not only set yourself on fire, but shoot yourself in the head twice. It's quite a, a tricky, tricky way to go.
2: That is a very strange story. This is in France, wasn't it?
3: Yes, yeah. So, is this to send out a message? Because, I mean, in some ways, one would do it in a much more subtle way than that. If it wanted to show it was a, a, a cover-up as a sort of suicide, this does raise questions. And this either is a bit of a cock-up um, because they thought presumably the body would be burnt and it wouldn't be discovered. Or was this a deliberate sign that actually, if you, you know, we can come after you if you speak?
4: Yes, I mean, I I don't know, you know, I mean, at this point, I'm dependent on, you know, John le Carré and people for knowing how the intelligence services operate. I mean, I'm not claiming any great sort of in-depth knowledge um, about that in particular, but it certainly seems very peculiar.
3: And, I mean, the other thing was that it took a long time. I mean, Diana was alive and talking when the the, the medics got there. And yet it took an awful long time to get her to... The hospital and didn't go to the obvious close hospital hospitals is this because she had to be treated i mean she was too injured to move and they treated her on the spot which i understand is the french system rather than us who take people to hospital or is this again were there reasons for that because i mean john talks about people not identified in the ambulance and i mean you know again yes. very strange things that were not questioned in any of the inquests and i think we should also say mm. that the last inquest with justice baker came down in favor of, of, of some of, of a criminal act and, and with with these vehicles running behind her
4: yes, I mean I'll, I'll go back to the ambulance, but the, the verdict is very important because I think almost everybody thinks that the verdict was accidental death. I mean if they have any opinion at all that it was an, just an accident, and <clears throat> in fact, what the jury said, the jury weren't allowed by the coroner to even consider a murder verdict, but they brought in unlawful killing which in law is homicide or manslaughter and it means a criminal act has been committed and that therefore the police should have been following up then to try and find out more about that but none of that ever happened effectively unlawful killing was treated as though it was the same thing as accidental death which it clearly isn't um but yes going back to the ambulance (laughs) and the treatment i mean diana was clearly injured in in the back seat um, there's a whole story about seat belts, which John goes into as well. That the seat belts appear to have been disabled in the rear seats. Um, so that you know is yet another very peculiar thing. Because seat belts don't stop working. I mean, they're, they're such a central part of the safety procedure of a car that they seem to have been deliberately sort of disabled so that they wouldn't work.
3: And this but, was a car from a car firm called Esquire, wasn't it? I I can't remember the name of the firm, but... uh, Normally produced their own drivers.
4: It was a car that you could have specifically sort of known that that car would be available at that time. It wasn't just a random one. There were attempts made at the inquest to suggest that you couldn't possibly have known in advance which car it would be. But I think John shows quite persuasively you could could have done. Um, But yes, Diana, I mean, it took about an hour and 46 minutes from when the crash happened till she finally got to hospital. And it's about sort of three miles. And this was late at night in Paris when there isn't that much traffic around at sort of half past midnight, one o'clock in the morning. Um, She was left, I think, for about 35 minutes in the back seat of the car. Even though there were numerous medical people around, there were people who John thinks were in, on, (coughs) excuse me, working, on behalf of the intelligence services who were keeping the other um, medical people away, obviously not everybody who turned up there was involved in some conspiracy, but there seemed to have been key people who were. And eventually when she was taken into the back of an ambulance, instead of the ambulance taking her to hospital, they just kept her there for a very long time. And then even when the ambulance did drive towards the hospital, it drove very slowly and then stopped and, um, waited for about another five or ten minutes before it got her to hospital and she seems to have been dead at that point there, there was a, a lot of um was made of the different systems in britain and france because in britain yes the object is to just get somebody in a car accident and get them to hospital very very quickly <clears throat> in france they have better equipped ambulances i think and they try and stabilize you at the scene but they still try and get you to hospital as quickly as possible They're aware, particularly if there's something like thoracic damage, which there was with Diana, that you have to be in hospital for that because it requires surgery. Um, And instead, before they even put her in the ambulance, she was in the back seat of the car for well over half an hour. And then when she was in the ambulance, all the things they seemed to have done to her were um, injecting her with drugs that would actually increase internal bleeding. Um, It's sort of extraordinary and also... Um, yes, several of the people who were in the ambulance have never been I- officially identified, which seems quite remarkable when you're having a six month long inquest. But sort of a basic fact is just that a lot of these people are, ne- are never, <clears throat> never even identified.
2: Well, that's all that. All I that's mean, fascinating. And uh, although I, I, I started to shake my head a bit when I, when John, because there are two doctors who treat her. One initially, and then another one comes along. Yeah. And John ends up saying both these doctors are part of the plot. Um, so now you've well, got ambulance there the, staff.
4: And... There are three altogether that he, he mentions because there's this, this one.
2: It's just this plot just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And is it really plausible that somebody who spent their whole life caring for patients <laughs> is recruited to make sure this very famous woman dies and then never talks about it? And, and people in the ambulance don't yeah. listen to them and say, what are you doing? You're, you're doing it all wrong. The, this is where to me the strands begin to separate. Sorry, well, I, guess, I, mean, I
3: suppose I, I, if people are under pressure. I mean, saying, you know, if you want your pension, then you know, you need to say certain things. But I agree to, to behave like this to start with seems unusual for people, uh, you know, who are trained doctors, yes, it would be. But
4: you know, I think it it, it is no, I mean, it's difficult if we're not going to mention names.
3: Um, John name sorry to interrupt names a lot of people and i mean was there ever any reaction to the book did anyone actually write him legal letters or did they just ignore it he didn't tell me i mean um we'll
4: get on to this but i mean i got to know john pretty well um over the next sort of seven or eight years um he didn't tell me they'd ever been threatened or silenced because obviously you know his, his books they were quite widely read but They were completely ignored by mainstream media. And, you know, it's a double-edged thing, isn't it? If you start um, threatening someone or suing someone, that you then often generate a lot more publicity. So I think the attitude was
3: just to try and ignore
4: him, basically.
3: I mean, it's interesting. I mean, there there have been a number of books uh, on on Dinah's death which argue very similar things to him. I mean, raise all yeah. sorts of questions. And indeed documentaries, often made by, you know, very reputable companies. So he's I mean, he, in some ways he was he was not just a lone voice. There were others saying very, very similar things, weren't there? Yes. I
4: mean it's interesting, you know, I mean there's a there's a sort of psychological the the version of this about why people are conspiracy theorists it's just when somebody famous dies you know some people just can't accept that they have died in a banal way you know like in a traffic accident so they have to come up with elaborate conspiracy theories and i used to think that to be honest i mean when diana died i just thought people had gone start raving mad when you know i was hearing strange things and i just thought it's a traffic accident it's a drunk driver it was only years later, because I got involved in this documentary and the inquest that I started to find a lot of the detail. And then you realise, you know, almost everything you've been told about this story is either untrue, or at least it's not in the way that you were told it. You are told one bit of the facts, but not others.
3: And I mean, there's some very respectful figures like Michael Mansfield, the lawyer, who um, have raised questions about the death. Um, uh, I mean, who else apart from Mansfield?
4: Well, Mansfield's interesting, incidentally, because he refers to John Morgan's books as the magnum opus on all of this, and has said that he referred to them regularly um, because John, you know, had laid everything out. But Whenever he does sort of mention a fact or a bit of transcript from something, it will always be detailed references so you can find it again and cross-check it. Um I mean, many other people, because Mohammed al-Fayed was such a a controversial figure. I mean, it was interesting because he died recently that he got quite sympathetic victories, it seemed to me, but of course he was treated like a madman by the mainstream press.
2: Well, he was, but I think going back back to the part of the book that I found particularly persuasive and interesting was the surveillance, the the, the attempts to undermine Diana. Um, We've done programs about this and I've actually written the book myself, which very much takes her side against the firm and some of the yeah. very, very nasty things that were done to her and said about her. But, I mean, you've, uh, John really does lay out how uh, how she was being monitored, maybe slightly harassed officially, and even suggests some of her friends uh, were actually the, the feeding information back to the spooks.
4: There was a woman, Simone Simmons, who I also interviewed subsequently. who was quite a close friend of Diana's in the last year or two of her life. And um, she says, I mean, this is on the public record that she says this happened. That when she was with Diana about six months before the crash, that um, Diana received a phone call, and it was from Nicholas Soames, who was then a junior minister of defence, um, saying to Diana that she should, about the landmine campaign that she should um, stop interfering in things she knows nothing about, and that accidents can happen. Nicholas Soames denies that that call ever took place, but Simone Simmons um, says that she was there and corroborates Diana's uh, version of that.
2: Gosh, well, so- Soames, of course, was famous the man who went on to Newsnight
4: the evening <clears> that
2: the Panorama interview was broadcast.
4: And yes, and said she seems to be in the advanced stages of paranoia,
2: yes. Correct. I mean, he was one of Charles's closest mates.
3: Yes. I mean, yes. If- if John is arguing that the um, the intelligence services behind this, I mean, he he also infers that members of the royal family briefed them on this or were certainly aware of it, and that seems extraordinary to have members of the royal family involved in an assassination in which the the the, the mother of of the future king is is being killed. I mean, it seems you know the, the royal family <laughs> been criticised, but no one's really ever accused them of of being party to murder before. Well, John well, no, was. but Diana. Um,
4: John. It's either in the it, It's either in Diana's um, legal note with Lord Mishcon, or it's in the note that she wrote to Paul Burrell, her butler, where she does specifically say that Prince Charles is having, is planning to have me killed or seriously injured in a car accident. Um, you know, I, I mean, that's what she said. That's not, not proof, of course, but <clears throat> what is extraordinary is that those things were covered up for so long. I mean, one, if I can just make a general point here, one thing I've, I've gradually understood more, and more not just about this, but about stories in general, is whoever gets their narrative in first, when some, when a big event happens, has kind of got the high ground then. And if you can get in the stories was an accident with a drunk driver, it doesn't really matter if you can show that actually none of the, the, the samples that were taken from the driver show that he was drunk and so on, because the narrative's already established that this was a drunk driver. It was a crash, nothing to see, move on, only loony conspiracy
3: theorists think there was anything more to it. I think uh, he's very good, sorry to interrupt, is is when he shows that they're often conflicting and changing testimony from lots and lots of people, including senior police officers and and others involved, Um, Hmm. uh, you know, uh, evidence that was given on oath in in two two inquests. Um, And you've got to ask, you know, why do people keep changing their story? Um, and why were there very inconsistent um, accounts of the same events?
4: Yeah. Yes, <clears throat> I mean, that is true. And the police actually at the inquest admitted they'd broken the law by suppressing that um, Mishkon's note because th- there was a, 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 even though the French conducted their inquiry first, there was a British coroner appointed almost immediately after the death. And the police have a legal ob- obligation to make. <clears throat> any relevant evidence available to the coroner, and they didn't for about six years.
3: Sorry, going walkabout. Keep talking, keep talking. Yeah. But, but um, also, Paul, I mean, the, there's also a suggestion that the, the post-mortem reports and, and the toxicology reports were of about Dodie and Diana were never really shown to the jury. Is that is that right? Because that came in an extraordinary lapse. Well, there was
4: several extraordinary things. One was that virtually no French witnesses came to the inquest, even though Britain at that point was part of the European Union and they were obliged to come. Um, the French government stepped in and said that they didn't need to come. And then secondly, the jury about two months into the inquest, I think, felt that they were having the wool pulled over their eyes. And they wrote a note to the coroner, saying, well, all these French witnesses who aren't coming to the inquest, you know, the people who did the toxicology, the police and so on, they all <clears throat> gave statements um, to the Metropolitan Police for the Paget report. And therefore, we want to see those if we can't in- see the, the witnesses themselves. And the coroner wrote back and said, you're not allowed to see them. And that strikes me as so extraordinary. I mean, one, one of John Morgan's many... Um, you know benefits to us all is that somebody sent him copies of most of these afterwards and he published them all in another book um so you can at least read that but the fact that the jury were not allowed to hear from you know most of the people who were involved in the immediate aftermath of this of the police of the people doing the autopsy doing the blood samples and there are extraordinary things about the blood samples of, of the driver on Paul, for instance that. um Blood samples were tested and were shown that he had a very high alcohol level. And blood samples were tested for DNA that showed it was his DNA. But the same blood sample was never tested for both. And that is just extraordinary um, because it's such a basic thing that you would do. So there is no way of knowing that the blood sample that was tested for high alcohol level um, was actually on reports at all.
3: And the labelling was was not very accurate, so it was very difficult for people later to check, wasn't it?
4: Yes, but the Metropolitan Police actually tried to, and because at that point they were still stored, and it was a uh, Dr. Pepin who had done the um, samples of the the blood samples, who actually said that you're not having the blood samples unless the President of France and the Queen of England say that they must have them, and then very soon after that they were destroyed. <laughs>
2: That's amazing. Um, we, we we are slightly running out of time. I mean, what is yeah. just? Uh, I want to say two things. You you talk about your documentary. I'm sure some of our listeners and viewers would love to watch. Is it available
4: anywhere? There were all sorts of problems about it. I, it you probably will find it somewhere on that 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 thing they call the internet. Uh, what's it's it called? called <laughs> unlawful killing.
2: Unlawful
4: and killing. I think if you put unlawful killing, Diana, Keith Allen, Keith Allen was the presenter of it. Got it. Um, with Victor Lewis Smith and I and Keith, all sort of wrote it between us. Um, and hopefully it's there. It gets taken down every so often, but it, usually there are lots of people out there who pop it up again. So we, we couldn't possibly,
3: possibly endorse. endorse we couldn't the, possibly endorse that. We'll we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll stick the link up. Um, and clearly a link to John's book. I mean, yes. is there anything finally, Paul? That I mean, that you 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 feel we haven't covered that you think makes the case, or questions that remain unanswered.
4: I think it's difficult. I mean, I, it, 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 you know, it's not that there's one smoking gun. It's that there are hundreds of f- things that have little wisps of smoke coming out of them. Really, <laughs> I don't think there's one. You know, I mean, you, no, nobody's stood up and said it's a fair cop. I did it, um, and that's. I don't think that's very likely. You know, and it's it's probably one of those things like the assassination of John F. Kennedy and so on that, even though you know there are so many things that you just think well the official story just is not plausible but it's very difficult to ever sort of pin pin anyone down completely and you know i almost admire the way sort of establishments powerful establishments just steamroll around basically and they delay and they obfuscate i mean it's incredible that the inquest took what 10 years after the crash to happen um, you know, all these things are that there are ways that. Well, look, that's you
2: know, a very, that's a very good point because we're often on here complaining. Just last week, we were complaining at the way that the allegations about cash for honours with Charles were just shoved under the carpet and, you know, mm. pushed into the long grass. All the other euphemisms people use for not yeah. doing their jobs. So you know, it, well, I've been um, rewatching it is a very old episodes.
4: I've been rewatching old episodes of Yes Minister recently, and I mean. I think a lot of those stand up very well because I think a lot of the wisdom about, yes, push it into the long grass, set up a committee that isn't going to report for three years, you know, just let time move on, really. And, you know, people are replaced. And it doesn't matter how, you know, it it seems to me that there is, it, it is quite clearly not a simple accident. And even the jury, you know, who weren't allowed to see most of the evidence, even the jury said this is not an accident. This is an unlawful killing. There's more to well, it than that. So um,
2: the, the sons, sons feel.
3: I mean, uh, doesn't Prince Harry feel that that? I mean, I think William blames the paparazzi, but I think Harry feels that there's more to the story, doesn't he?
4: I've heard that. I mean, I'm I don't have any direct contact, and I'm always you know slightly suspicious about Chinese whispers and so on that that come through. But um, but I have heard yes, that that both of them you know are, are suspicious about what happened to their mother. But probably, you know, being, well, I mean, Harry's kind of not really within the royal family very much now, I suppose. But, um, you know, it's it's difficult to, to you know, because what happened with Diana? I mean, she was a squeaky wheel, wasn't she? And, you know, whatever you think the reason is, she, she died at a young age. Um, and a lot of people were certainly relieved that she died at a young age. Whether it was an accident, I can't hand on heart say I 100% know what happened. But I think there's there's a lot more to it than an accident. But it was certainly very convenient to a lot of powerful people.
3: Oh, yes, right. it could well, have you, been you, who you will rid me of this turbulent sorry. priest.
2: Yes, indeed. Well, you've given yeah. us so much to think about. Fifty minutes. Yes.
3: Fifty minutes of it. <laughs> oh well, we, we, we well, it's a very complicated story to it explain. Is. I mean, John takes you know seven hundred pages or whatever. So you've done a brilliant job in, in encapsulating it.
4: Yes. Um, well, I have. I, very I, I, interesting I've to
3: talk to. You. Thought. I mean, John wrote
4: lots of books. There's actually this other one. If I hold it up, that he did Paris London Connection, which is only about a hundred and ninety pages, and that was the, his deliberate attempt to synthesize it down even more. To, to just tell the story. I mean, inevitably because he's reduced it to that, then you know, you have to go to the other books to get the, the fine detail and check. But um for as a as a basis for anybody who's gonna be listening to this, <clears throat> who's interested, I'd recommend Paris London Connection, which you all should right, be able we'll to get that, via We'll Amazon. put that
2: link up on the website. And many, many yeah. thanks.
4: Good. Yes. Well thanks, it's nice to talk about it. It's been a few years since no, we've I was involved it. in it all.
3: You know, right. thank you so much, because it's difficult to talk about a book that's not, you know, your own. But you, you've covered a lot of very, very interesting points. And we'll be very interested to hear what readers feel about it and what their own thoughts are. Indeed. Yeah. you, said Good. Right. Oh, I hope
4: it encourages a lot of people to read, read some you, of these books. Yeah. Right. Thanks, Sam. Thanks a lot.
3: Bye. bye. Okay. Bye. Gosh. Are you persuaded?
2: Well, it's a... Uh... I feel a little sorry for John, don't you? I mean, he obviously had no idea he had these awful health complaints. And, you know, you have this idea of this sort of man with this obsessive interest, um, maybe too obsessive in this event, but he also picked away and picked away and found lots of things that are a bit off.
3: Yeah, um, so it's, I, I mean, it know, is forensic. It? You persuaded Andrew. Well, I think there are a lot of unanswered questions. And I mean, you know, I think a lot of people should have been called who weren't called. A lot of people changed their story. Uh, I think it's certainly ripe for more investigation. I think there's still a book to be done, maybe bringing everything together and trying to answer some of these anomalies. Um And uh so I don't think she was murdered. um, But I do think that uh, there are a lot of unexplained elements here. And there's yeah, more. No, I think there's.
2: People are out to get her in in various different ways. Of that, I'm convinced that she was under surveillance. I think I am convinced, and whether they were out to get her in terms of ending her life, I'm probably not convinced. But actually, I was thinking about something that at the beginning of my career, I worked on World in Action, the investigative show. It's come up now and again in some of our programs. Um, I think Andy Verity spoke about how he used to love it, and for a while we got very excited by a story about cancer clusters, because some journalists and lawyers found all these cases of childhood leukaemia around nuclear power stations. And this case had a lot of weight and, and momentum, and you know, it was taken to various um, tribunals, and scientific investigations were held, and it was going to go to court. And a lot of families who'd lost children you know, got quite, I don't know, wound up, excited, angry about this. And then it all sort of came apart because other people started doing analyses of the same data. And they said, well, you could plot cancer deaths like this around pubs called the Black Bull or factories beginning with the letter S or any other sort of random number of things. And the human mind kind of wants to see a pattern when actually sometimes there isn't one.
3: Yeah. No, I mean, I, you know, and I think people clearly, you know, it's, it's very hard to, to, to comprehend that something so trivial and so stupid as just getting into a car with a drunk driver should have all the ramifications it had, and people want you know, answers. I'd be very interested to hear what listeners f- feel. And, I mean, there may be people who've read a lot of these books. There are lots of them. Neil Botham is another one, as my uncle John Bryant that I represented. Um, so I think it would be interesting to hear what other people feel and where perhaps they feel there are questions still to be explored. But it shows the diner industry is not dead.
2: Well, as an agent as well as a writer, Andrew, you would know what publishers actually want when you pitch them a book. Um my guess is if somebody picks up
3: a book to say, everything's what
2: you think, got into a car, it was a drunken driver, they would probably say, boring. Am I wrong?
3: Is that, oh, exactly. It's like it's like diets. Diets that tell you to eat less don't sell. Diets that tell you to eat just tomatoes are best sellers. <laughs> so um uh, there is an element to that. But it's also it's timing. I, I represented a man called Lee Sampson who was the bodyguard who wasn't on that night, but spent the summer with her. And I couldn't sell that book, um, for years. And it actually, I think came out for the 25th anniversary with a, with, with another agent. But it just shows you that, that there's sort of waxes and wanes the interest in Diana. Uh, it's not perhaps as constant as one thinks, or at least the gatekeepers, the publishers didn't feel that was the case. I mean, I'm just amazed looking at Amazon and the number of reviews, for example, Andrew Morton has, and that his book still is up there as a bestseller. Yeah. So it shows that, that, you know, in some ways, if you, have a, an inside story someone who's who's very well regarded those books tend to last i mean there's so many rubbish raw books around um i am reviewing one at the moment uh and you just wonder how these books ever got published sometimes
2: well look thank you for that i enjoyed that thanks for you for making me do it it was interesting um, oh good we did promise our viewers and listeners that we'd have better technical quality and i'm sorry i'm that last interview wasn't that, but we are working on it.
3: Yeah, it will get better. But, I mean, it was it was very good of him because he was re- speaking about someone else's book. Um, but, yeah, no, I think it's good that we go to places that we may not necessarily we feel that there's another point of view. I think that's always very important to look at other points of view.
2: All right, well, we'll do a programme about how Lord Mountbatten was a tremendous war hero who's been sadly <laughs> aligned by all sorts of <laughs> grubby hacks like Mr. Yeah, a.
3: <laughs> exactly yes I, I can think of several people who would appear on that program all right mate very good talking to you see you soon <laughs> okay, okay till next week bye thank you for listening to the scandal mongers podcast this has been a podcast world production you can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org placing scandal mongers in the heading or via our social media links within the show's bio